What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to episode 27 of Twigs and Twine. Today, it's Matt and Alex. Alex, how you doing? Not doing too bad, to be honest with you. Leaf preseason hockey's on television next to me. Getting a sense of what we're dealing with next year. But aside from that, couldn't be doing any better. Glad to hear, glad to hear. Before we get into everything, I just got one quick question. Do you think Ilya McKayev's going to make this team? Yeah, 100%. I don't know. I think the play of guys like Josh Hosang have kind of fucked them over. No, he is too big of a part on this team on the defensive role and on those checking lines that they don't have any more energy guys to go out there and kind of cause a disturbance in the offensive zone. He is that guy for them. That's true, but I want to see. Like I've seen, I've noticed that with guys like Kosen, guys like Mike Bunting, I've really like their energy play, the way that they can go and they can check. Any guy like like Curtis Gabriel, like all these signings that the Leafs made this offseason, I've really liked the way they've looked. Granted, it's only preseason; the games don't matter at all. But I've really enjoyed the way they look, the way they've been playing, and it's been known that McCabe has asked for a trade out of Toronto. So I don't know. I think that before preseason started, they had no reason to trade him because the new guys didn't give them any reason to. But now with the way that they've been playing, I think it gives Dubas more of a reason to, to trade Mikheyev and his, what is it, $1.6 million contract? If you weren't going to trade him, then why tell him, no, we still need you on this team? If you would have done it by now and gotten rid of him, tell him you're not going to make this team or whatever, it would have happened. Why are you going to drag it out to the last week before the season starts? I mean, if that's the case, I think that would be a pretty scumbag move of the Leafs front office, to be honest with you. But, uh, well, then again, I'm not the one sitting in that chair. True, but at the same time, Leafs sent down Robertson today. Nick Robertson got sent down to the minors. I think all signs are pointing to Josh Hosang making this team. Nikita Gusev has no chance. That guy's going to go back to Russia and make $10 bucks playing uh, for CSK in Moscow. But I think Josh Hosang has proven his point that he should be on this team. And I think that he's the one that's going to drive Mikheyev out of town. I don't think so. I mean, he's just scored this game right here, Mikheyev, not even 10 minutes ago. I honestly did a bit of grocery shopping yeah, before we started recording, so I didn't get a chance to watch the game. Anyway, so moving on, this week we are joined by former NHL pro, current agent for the Washington Group, Drew Shore. In my first solo interview since five, four years now, since I had, uh, since the, like the last time I did a solo interview, and that interview was never even posted anywhere. Anyways, Drew Shore, an amazing guy. He's got some amazing stories from his travels all over the world to play hockey and the home that he's found in the agency business. So it's starting off with uh, our news of the week. Last week, we discussed Travis Hamnick potentially opting out of the season because it was very vague, the reasons that he was giving. And this is even vague as well. He will not be opting out of the season. He'll be taking time off to attend personal matters. He still hasn't reported to training camp, at least to my knowledge. And I'm not sure when he's going to be coming back. But again, Travis, it's personal matters. Just take as much time as you need. Like I said last week, the hockey world, it's its a family. It, it's a group that comes together for players and staff and anybody involved in hockey in any way. It's a community that always looks out for the best interests of its members. So again, Travis, take all the time you need, especially if it means you're not going to be playing against the Leafs and Vancouver comes to Toronto because that's a very big hole if you're missing. Hopefully that means Toronto could scrape out a win because Vancouver has been that team that's been pissing off Toronto for years. Not Muff, any thoughts? When it comes to personal matters, your personal life comes first. Family, friends, whatever the case may be, hockey second to that. And uh, the last year and, uh, and a half has been really tough for a lot of people. You hope whatever, if it's a family thing or something with one of his friends, that they get through it. And there's going to be a spot on that blue line waiting for him whenever he's ready to come on back. Well said, well said. And last week, Joey and I, we discussed the effect that's going to have on the Quinn Hughes contract signing because Hamnick is Hughes' D partner. And funny enough, Quinn Hughes and Elias Patterson have both re-signed with the Vancouver Canucks. Hughes signed six years at $7.85 million per, and Patterson signs three years, $7.35 mil per. Muff, when it comes to defensemen's contracts, especially these big contracts, you're always ready to shit on them. So let's start with Hughes. What's your thoughts? And then I'll get to my opinion. I mean, he isn't of the caliber like Seth Jones. And when we saw him sign his monster deal with uh, the Chicago Blackhawks and at the price point Quinn Hughes was able to sign, I, it's a little more understanding and I don't get as pissed off 
as I would if he got anything higher. He had one good season. He's put up points, but at the same time, he does not play like a defenseman. If I remember correctly, the worst plus minus in the entire NHL. He put up points, like I said, but he doesn't play either wing or the center. He's supposed to be on that back end. And uh, as hard as they are to come by, these offensive defensemen, and as elite as it is, you have to be able to protect your own goaltender and keep pucks out of your net. And just unfortunately, he hasn't been able to do that. And I think that's what's keeping him from that extra one and a half or $2 million, whatever it is, to be comparable to Seth Jones. Mind you, he's still really young. and He's going to have, I'd say, another two monster deals by the time he's out of this league. But at this point, I heard it. I didn't think it was awful. But still, I mean, $7.5 million for a defenseman who plays more like a forward. I think if you were able to lock him down to a bridge deal, and then if he doesn't pan out defensively, do you maybe move him? As we've seen with the uh, Vancouver Canucks, that goals against have been an issue. Uh, not necessarily point them in the net. And with the addition of Connor Garland, the breakthrough season that Niels Hoglander had last year, these are guys who can put the puck in the net, but are you really going to be able to rely on Travis Hamnick? Well, he's not on the blue line, but Tucker Pullman, Tyler Myers, Ole Levy, Oliver ekman Larson, who just came in. And then your goaltenders, sorry, are Halak and Thatcher Demko. I mean, Demko played well. We've seen what Halak can do when he's healthy, but at the same time, I'm still not sold on Demko being an elite goaltender, and Halak's still a fringy backup, in my opinion. Didn't Demko just sign a big contract recently? He signed a contract, yeah, but I still I don't think that it four by four years, five mil per. I don't. I just don't think it's worth it. I don't think he's an elite goaltender for a guy who's he's 25 now, five million bucks a season. That's not the worst contract. I've seen a lot worse. Question is, is how is how he's going to play in that con- with that contract? Last season, he had 35 games last season, 9.15 save percentage, 2.85 GAA. Like, that's an above-average stat line. It's an above-average stat line, but at the same time, you're giving quite a bit of money to a goaltender who hasn't necessarily proved himself, and they don't have the best defense up front. So with with a shaky defensive core and a shaky goaltender, that contract can look extremely bad really fast. And that could very well, if the optics turn really shitty, can be the last thing that Jim Benning is remembered for. Forget the whole Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson. Okay, maybe I misunderstood you, but... I don't think you could put you could put the shaky defensive core on the goaltenders. Can't put the D core into the goaltenders' contract negotiations because he has nothing to do with a shit D core. I understand that, but the thing is, you can sign him to five and a half million dollars, and if your defensive core plays well and they help you keep a goals against average of two, then that contract looks really, really good. But if you have that same contract and a shitty defensive core, and his goals against average shoots up to three and a half, or between three and a half and four, at $5 million, do you really want a goaltender who's going to be looking with a, uh, a three and a half goals against average? It's just not... I agree. I completely agree. I can understand where you're coming from, that you don't bring in the, your defensive core struggles into the contract negotiations of your goaltender. But at the same time, when you see it on social media and whatnot, it is the average fans who see that and don't realize the in-depth that are going to cause all the stir, and it can lead to so many more issues. That, that's all I'm saying. Okay, I'm not an advanced stats guy by any stretch of the imagination. If you show me a, a, a fancy stat, I will not be able to break any of that down for any player. But when it comes to, especially especially goalies, I'm speaking more for just myself, but like this is the way you should be doing it. You should be looking further into the stats for goalies because their job and like their stat line is dependent on, like you said, dependent on the defensive core. So to all the casual fans out there who look at goalies and think they're terrible, they're, they're not worth their contract, look who they're playing behind. For all the shit that I said about Freddie Anderson, like he also didn't play behind the best defensive. To use Leaf examples, because that's where most of my knowledge lies, guys like Ryan or guys like Bernier, they play behind shit defensive course. So they're not good goaltenders in their own right anyway. Still, but they're a lot better than people were giving them credit for. 
Yeah, Bernie, you may have an argument. James Rammer, I don't think so. Not, not at all. I think that the at that time, the Toronto defensive board was at a state where put in prime Patrick Waugh and you're going to have a – he's going to look a lot worse on that – on like the 2015 Leafs compared to the teams that he, play, uh, he played on in his career. Anyways, uh, so yeah, Quinn Hughes – and you were mentioning Quinn Hughes, very ter- like a terrible defensive player. Yeah, minus 24 this past season, 56 games, 41 points, three goals, 38 assists, minus 24. Season before that, 68 games, eight goals, 45 assists, 53 points, minus 10. Honestly, I would like that contract a lot more if you move him up to wing. No, you can't do that. It's way too late for the kid now. Then Brent Burns switched from forward to defense when he was like in his mid-20s. Bufflin switched multiple times in his career. I know he switched, but it's so much of a different game. From defense to offense, I understand Quinn Hughes is good, but there's the whole getting points aspect, and then there's the positioning aspect on the offensive end, on the defensive end, who your assignments are, who your assignments are if you get mixed up in position, where that only comes with experience when you're playing below the blue line in the offensive end. And that's something you don't just sit down and you know, watch a whole bunch of film and study that comes with uh, on ice experience. And you don't necessarily pick that up as a defenseman who sits at the blue line, even if you really want to. I don't think so. I think it is possible, 100 percent possible, especially at his age at 21. I think it's 100 percent possible. But like still, you know, position switch aside, I'm not that pissed with this contract. I think that seven, eight, five for a defenseman who especially the fact that it's six years I'm not sure if you're going to walk him right to free agency. I'm not 100% sure on that. But for six years, for a defenseman who's going to be in your top two consistently, night by night, who, by all accounts, stays healthy. Granted, it's a small sample size. I think Vancouver only ended up playing 68 games in 1920. And, and last season, every, only all teams played 56. So, yeah, he does stay healthy. He puts up points, which he's a defenseman you don't rely on for his defensive capabilities. That's why you put him with a defenseman like Travis Hamlin who is a plus player who you could play that the good cop, bad cop, the, the offensive defenseman, a stay-at-home defenseman. So I'm indifferent. I'm leaning more towards liking this contract as opposed to hating it. This would be one of those time will tell contracts. Exactly. But that's the same thing with a lot of them. One contract that's not at all, in my opinion, a time will tell contract is uh, Elias Patterson. His contract at three years, 7.35 mil per year, a bridge deal mm-hmm. that. Nothing else to say about it. It's a bridge deal. Last season, he had 21 points in 26 games. He was injured for half a season. He still had, what is that? That's over a 30-goal pace, 10 goals in 26 games. And he had 11 assists, 21 points, even player. Last The season before that, 68 games, 27 goals, 39 assists, 66 points, plus 16. He is a goal scorer. He is their star player. No doubt in my mind, Elias Pedersen is their star player. At the end of this three-year contract, he's going to end up signing for uh, an eight-figure contract. I've always asked where what happened to the bridge deals? What happened to the bridge deals? Why did nobody sign them? And finally, somebody, well, I think, he's not yet worth those double-digit millions-of-dollar contracts, but you have to prove yourself. You have to prove yourself. And I don't think that Elias Pedersen has done enough in a league to warrant a 10-plus million-dollar contract. And being able to sign for little over $7 million a year for three years. It's enough time that you can establish yourself and you have time, if you do, prove yourself to uh, sign another large contract in the future. But you know what? I like Jim Benning actually did something all right. He has, I still understand that they are not in the greatest spot in terms of financial salaries, but... But are you talking cap-wise or budget-wise? Cap-wise, cap-wise. But you know what? It's, it's a step in the right direction for these guys. And they keep working. This can be a, uh, a tough team to beat. Last year, they had their issues, uh, not only with the playing, they had their COVID scare, wreaked havoc it all throughout the dressing room. But this year, they stay healthy and they can all play. You get good production out of Bo Horvat, JT Miller, a little bit from Tanner Pearson, Connor Garland, all these guys. And then you have some good defensemen. Hopefully, Ekman Larson can rejuvenate all over again. Tucker Pullman, they just brought in this year. Hopefully he's a big fella. He can have some good impact on the back end. And then you have Tyler Myers there too, to boot. So they have good players. I'd probably say they're missing a little something, something on the right side 
on the wing, but you know what? If you, they can play well, they'll be a team to watch. Speaking on their cap concerns, I just look at cap friendly right now. They have the projected cap it is eighty three point seven one million dollars, which is obviously over the cap of eighty one five or eighty one nine. I don't whatever it was, but they also do have Michael Furlan's three and a half mil for the next couple of years on IR, so they have roughly one point three mil to play with, which is it's, it is completely doable. So and also by the way, just I'm not fucking this up. Do we have a contract here that you actually don't hate? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Holy fuck. Yeah. Well, I like all the Lamorello's contracts. Those are all good ones. Okay, but yeah, that's a gimme. That's a gimme. But that's that's Lou. Outside of Lamorello's contract, I like the Pedersen contract. Wow. It's a historic moment in Twix and Twine history here. Alexander Muff actually in, doesn't hate a contract. Anyways, I think we'll just send it off to our interview with Drew Shore. We hope you guys enjoy. We'll see you back in a second. We are proud to have on the show today, longtime NHL pro, longtime AHL pro, longtime European pro, Drew Shore on. Drew, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, man. Thanks for having me on. My absolute pleasure. So uh, first off, before we get into everything, I just want to congratulate you on your on uh, your retirement and your new venture with Washman Hockey Group. What made agency the right move for you post-playing? Um, it was something that a few years ago I decided I wanted to stay in the game. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that. I thought about maybe getting into some different finance uh, opportunities, but decided I wanted to stay in the game. I got two young daughters now and wanted a little bit of stability for them. So that was kind of something that turned me off from the coaching route. And also just throughout my career, I just had so many good and bad experiences that I really think I have a lot to offer, like the next generation of player. And I feel like as an agent, there's a lot of opportunity to do that. Whereas like if I would have went the coaching route, I mean, you might have a player for one season or maybe two seasons max, and then they either move on or get traded or do something else. So I just felt like it was an opportunity where I can really use the experiences I had growing up and playing professionally to uh, hopefully help, uh, like I said, the next generation of players. So uh, we had on in the first few weeks of, like, of this show's creation, we had on Rand Simon from uh, any, one of the agents from your old agency in Newport Sports. He brought us through like the rundown of how everything works at the agency and like basically talk about how they do everything in tandem for the most part. Can you just take us through like what your role is at Wasserman? Yeah, so the way Wasserman works, which is really cool, is basically I am kind of my own agent in a sense that I will recruit my own players and stuff like that, but I... I'm really fortunate. One of the reasons I wanted to join Wasserman is because they have some of the best senior agents in the business. So there's guys like Judd Moldover, Jeff Jackson, Pete Rutilli. So there's so many guys who have been really helpful in just teaching me the business and giving me different guys' contact information and stuff like that. So that was kind of one of the reasons that I wanted to do it. So they run a really good shop and just a sense that like players have so many different resources in a sense that if I have a kid from Colorado who I'm representing, but he decides to go to Arizona and that's where Judd is like Judd will help me take care of him. So it's more of like a family in that sense. So now just to start off with your uh, playing career, you played two seasons in the U S development program. You're the first person that we've had on the show, at least to my knowledge, to my memory that has played in the, uh, in the development program. Can you just take the listeners through what that program is all about? Because it's a program, at least we're all up in Canada, all, all three of our, uh, our hosts, and we don't get much news and everything from the development program or like it's basically an afterthought up north. So can you just take us through what uh, the development program is all about? Yeah, so it's a really cool program. So I think, I'm pretty sure they do it the same now. They bring in 40 kids for a tryout, kind of who they think the 40 best kids are. And then from there, they pick a team and it's a two-year program. And the way it works is pretty unique. It's the sense that basically your first year, you play a majority of your games in the USHL. And then you also have two or three big international tournaments. And then your next year, you play a half college schedule, half USHL schedule, and then also have the big international tournaments, which like, I know your 17 year, you have like the world under 17 challenge or 18 year, you have world under 18. And it's just a great program. It's a sense that, I mean, you're there with some of the best kids in the U S you're training every day, you're practicing every day. The coaching's great. And a lot of guys go on to be really successful who come from there. After your time in the development program, you played your junior hockey with the University of Denver, but you were actually drafted to the WHL. So what made the NCAA route seem perfect for you and why Denver? Obviously, it's your home state, but is there anything else that uh, stood out with the University of Denver? Yeah, there was a couple of things. It was like, so when you get drafted in the WHL, you get drafted. And unlike the OHL and Quebec League, you have an extra year before you're eligible to play. So during that year, when I wasn't eligible to play, 
I moved to Michigan. So I got to attend a lot of college hockey games. And like, if you've ever seen a college hockey game at like the University of Michigan, it's one of the best atmospheres, even like their football game and just being on campus. So that really opened my eyes to the college route. Denver being so close to home and having so many good players and such a good program, it was a pretty easy draw for me. So uh, you're drafted in the second round in 09 by the Florida Panthers. What was the draft process like for you? And uh, do you have any stories, any fond memories from whether it be the interview process, from the combine, from uh, your first few hours as a Florida Panther? You know what? Looking back, like I was supposed to be a first round pick. And so that first round is on Friday night. And then uh, when you don't get picked in the first round, it's, I don't know, it's obviously a little disappointing. So you're kind of, uh, I spent a little bit of that night sulking, but then uh, you get up early the next day and they start with the round two and to be drafted by Florida was awesome. My mom grew up in Florida and I knew it was kind of an up and coming team with a lot of young guys where hopefully I'd get an opportunity. So uh, I was really excited about it. I forgot who it was that we spoke with. I want to say it was Mike Costco with the, um, the draft interview process. Uh, he had a couple of great stories. Who else were you, were you interviewed by other than the Panthers? Like I said, I was like kind of a guy who was like slated to go like late in the first round or early in the second round. So because of that, you kind of get interviewed by almost all the teams, right? Because it's like the teams who do well, sorry, the teams who do well are picking late in that first round. And then the teams who don't do well are picking again early in the second round. So I remember like the combine, I remember was a little bit stressful, but I was late to one of my interviews. Like, I think, I'm not sure. I think it might've been 10 or 15 minute blocks. And one of my interviews went way over. So I was late to my next interview. And I remember the team giving me a little bit of hard time about that. And obviously I rushed right over there. It was like a couple doors down in a hotel room, but I enjoyed that process. I'm pretty outgoing. And like I said, it was fun to meet different teams and different jams. I hear the stories about like this guy being an absolute nutcase with uh, and like being a little bit like anal with the draft interviews. Brian Burke, did you have a chance to go with the interview with Toronto during that, that span? Yeah, I did, but I don't remember it being too anything out of the ordinary. And I actually uh, crossed paths again with Berkey when I got traded to Calgary. And he was a really good guy who's been in the game a long time and uh, obviously has a great hockey mind. 100%. So after your rookie season in Denver, you exploded for over a point per game in years two and three. What clicked after that first year at school? I think a lot of it was just opportunity. I mean, it's tough as a freshman, like as an 18-year-old going to one of the good programs. Like we had guys, like I don't know if you know them, but like Rhett Rakshani and Joe Colburn and some of these guys who uh, turned out to be really good pros who had just been there a few years. So I spent a lot of time kind of on like the third line and didn't get a ton of power play time and stuff like that. And then when a lot of those guys left, um, it kind of gave me an opportunity to pull in. I was able to take advantage of it. So after your final season with the University of Denver, you went on to play a handful of the final regular season games, as well as the playoffs with the San Antonio Rampage in the AHL. What was the experience like going straight from school to go on that run and fairly deep in the playoffs? That was awesome. It was also really beneficial for me the next year, just because I knew a lot of the guys and I knew what I was getting into. The pro game is obviously a lot different than the college game. And just, there's a lot of things as a young kid, you're kind of, I go in eyes wide open. So I was really happy I did that. And I don't know, San Antonio, like I loved my time there in terms of an AHL city. It's too bad. There's not a team there. They actually just got rid of the team. Good weather. We shared a facility with the Spurs. So it's like the rink was great. And we had a bunch of really good guys on our team. So I really enjoyed those early first few years there. The golf there is pretty good too, right? Yeah, I like to play golf too. So that was nice. And it was like perfect temperature too. You come out of the rink and it's like, especially during the winter, like it's, I'm sure it's a little hot there in the summer, but we were never there during the summer. So yeah, it was a fun city. So during your time in San Antonio, there's one person who I want to uh, highlight. And uh, I'm going to be honest, most of my research prepping for this interview came from your interview on Chicklets. Ryan Whitney, what kind of a teammate was he like when you're in uh, San Antonio? And uh, I'm not sure if you guys played together on the big club, but what kind of a guy like off the ice was he like? We know he was, he was a great player. Yeah, yeah, he had his injury issues, but even uh, later on in his career, still, he was still very good, a very good player. But off the ice, you, we see like the rock star that he is with Chicklets with Barstool. What kind of a guy was he like pre Barstool pre uh, podcast? Exactly the same guy. He's a guy who you could sit there and like have a beer with or just hang out with and you just be crying laughing for hours and hours just because he's got so many good stories. And it's funny now because he's been so successful um, with what he's done. So obviously the podcast route has just been a perfect role for him. But uh, he was a guy who just like, I mean, obviously he was a little disappointed being in the AHL at that time, but always made kind of any negative experience he had, he turned it into something that was just hilarious. So he was definitely uh, one of the highlights of being there for that second year, just because he made coming to the rink every day a blast. So one more person I want to highlight uh, during your time in Florida, and we spoke a bit about him 
pre-recording was Christopher Stieg. And the guy's an absolute rock star and anybody listening knows this from the interview that we had with him a few months ago. Can you uh, speak on uh, your time uh, with Steger with the Panthers? Anything that uh, sticks out, whether it be with this, uh, like if you had the chance to play on his line, if anything off the ice in practice? Steger was a guy who was, he was really good to me. He was really good to young guys. Same thing in terms of very funny, but like a guy who just would always say what was on his mind no matter what. He's a guy I've kept in contact with a bit just because we crossed paths a little bit down the road. Just uh, like he played in Russia for a little bit one year and stuff like that. But he was a guy who just, I mean, he played hard too. Like I think a lot of people don't realize like how hard he played. And obviously uh, Chicago kept bringing him back to win cups in the playoffs. So I think that he's a guy who, like I said, being a young guy, he was someone who always went out of his way to make me feel comfortable. And a lot of times he would do it like through humor. You know what I mean? Like he'd poke fun at you or just say something about the suit you wore to the rink or something like that. And, like I said, he uh, I had a really good group of older guys who made coming to the rank as a rookie really easy. So after Florida, you went to Calgary via trade and played for a really tough roster in Bob Hartley. What kind of a coach was he and how did his uh, mentality and coaching style affect your either be state off the ice or your play? It was tough going there as a young kid. Like I was still trying to prove myself in the NHL. And at the time when I got traded there, I was kind of the 13th forward and they went on a really good playoff run that year. So it was tough to crack the lineup. So he was a coach who, I mean, he's very detail oriented. He's a guy who loves video. He is not the most well-liked guy by different players just because of the way he kind of handles different things, but he's a guy who, cares a lot about the team and definitely uh, puts the time in and knows the game. So you got to respect that part about him. He's definitely not a player's coach. I mean, the guy's in Russia right now, so you never know, but he might be a player's coach over there. So we'll see. Exactly. The stories that you, that we hear from the Russian, like the KHL, even the other European leagues, that guy's probably the most beloved coach in the league there. Yeah, for sure. So after Calgary, you started your uh, European career with, uh, I'm hoping I pronounced this right, Cloten in the Swiss League. What was your first memory where you just said to yourself, holy shit, this is European hockey? And holy shit, European hockey is like a lot different from uh, the whether it be the AHL, the NHL. Um, and why Switzerland? So that year, I kind of knew I was kind of tired of the American League. I hadn't fully made the NHL. I was kind of looking for something new. I had obviously guys like Switzerland has like a reputation among guys about just being the best place to play. Like the money's not quite as good as some of the top guys are making in Russia, but like overall in terms of like lifestyle, hockey, money, it's like probably I would say the number one spot to be. So I didn't have a contract kind of after free agency there and then didn't know much about it and uh, literally ended up like signing. And I remember my wife was like, when are we leaving? And I was like three days. So so we went over there and my first year there, we had such a good group of imports that it was probably one of my most, it was definitely my most fun year playing in Europe. Bobby Sanguinetti was there. James Shepard was there. And then a Finnish guy named Tommy Santala who had played in Cloten for like 10 or 15 years. And we lived like 10 minutes outside of Zurich and uh, it was awesome. You a big ski guy? Yeah, but like with those contracts, you're not supposed to be skiing during your uh, thing. So actually, they have this crazy opera ski, they call it, in Switzerland. So like at the top of the mountain, they just literally have a party with like hot tubs and there's like rap music going on. And there's like, it's like you feel like you're in a nightclub and these people just party all day at the top of the mountain and then ski down. So we definitely uh, attended a few opera skis and then had to take the gondola down. <laughs> I love it. After your first season in Switzerland, you signed on to finish the year with uh, the Canucks. How did that opportunity come about? So I was having a really good year in Switzerland. And um, I thought at the time I'd gotten a couple offers, but the way it works is if you sign after a certain date, I can't remember off the top of my head what the date was, you're not eligible to play in the playoffs. So I had to sign with a team who wasn't in the playoffs and they weren't in the playoffs then. I knew a couple guys in Vancouver and I was supposed to get a really good opportunity there. And I kind of was excited to go back, went back, and then uh, played a lot of fourth line, didn't play a lot. And then I uh, was kind of happy I did that because then it was a pretty easy decision that summer to return back to Zurich. So that was something I wish I would have gone differently, but that's just how it goes. Uh, how was it like playing with the scenes? It was awesome. It was uh, just to see them, like, the way they live, basically, not only play hockey, but just live, like, just such professionals. And you can see why they're so beloved by Hey, not only all their teammates, but basically the entire city just because of how hard they work and how dedicated they are to the game. Like, I think that that was really cool. How long did it take you to uh, to figure out who was who? I still don't know. If I saw him, I was there for like six weeks. If I saw him walking down the street today, I don't think I would know who was who. I think you got to be there for a lot longer than I was to uh, determine that. My God, they're, they're identical. I don't know what, like how coaches, GMs can even figure that out. They could switch jerseys and still play. Uh... Oh, it's not. You'd have no idea. Yeah. 
So um, midway through your third season in Switzerland, you moved on to China with uh, Kunlun Red Star in the KHL. The team was coached uh, the previous year by uh, Iron Mike Keenan and had a bunch of ex-NHL players, a couple of absolute maniacs, guys like Brandon Yip. So did any of the team have like have some like PTSD from Keenan's time as coach when you got there? Anything like, oh, um, we weren't allowed to do this back uh, like last year because of Keenan or like this because of Keenan? No, not really. Like, I actually haven't heard too many Keenan stories. Like, obviously, he's got the name, and I know he won a couple times in Magnitogorsk, but there wasn't too much of that. Like, I think that he got fired, I think, pretty early in that year. So I don't even think he was around very long for the majority of the season before. So by the time I had come in halfway through the following season, it had been almost over a year since he'd been there. So I didn't actually get a ton of that. Everybody knows about the uh, the Kunlun owner and like the guy and the way that he is. Uh, you had any stories from what's his what was his name? Was it Jimmy? Billy. Billy is what his name is because that's what I call Brandon. I call him Billy. Yep, because he's like a son to that guy. But no, he's good. Like I think that one thing is they're really trying to grow hockey in China, especially with the Olympics being there this year. And I actually have some friends who are now playing in the Olympics for China this year. Guys who are been there for a few years and played on the Kunlun team. So I think that. Hopefully, like I said, they're trying to make hockey more of a global game. And I think that by growing it, obviously, in a place like that, it could have a huge impact if it works. Like, especially if you look at, I mean, the NBA has been doing it for 20 years. And now look how far ahead that is. So hopefully hockey's on the right path there. And we'll see how it goes. Would you consider making a comeback to play for China if given the chance? I don't think so. I'm more of a USA guy. And I'm obviously not playing on that team. So I think I'm going to have to stay retired. Moving on from China, you played with Torpedo, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce the rest of that name, uh, Torpedo in the KHL for 19 games in 2020, fully embracing the KHL lifestyle, living in Russia, playing in Russia. One question I have is regarding the uh, the hallowed uh, Russian gas that's that's been made into a piece of hockey legend by Chicklets. What was the uh, the situation like in Torpedo regard, uh, or even like anything you heard from around the, uh, the KHL at that time? And did you ever get a chance to uh, to get after it? No, so I never did. I think the one misconception is like a lot of people say that they've tried it over there, but I'm not even sure what it is. But I think that there's only a few teams who uh, have the budget because it's extremely expensive. And I never played on one of the super, super high end teams. So I never um, came in contact with it, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, like I enjoyed being in Russia. It was tough. I wasn't at a good time in my life for it in the sense that I had a young daughter, but I mean, like my brother's over there now who doesn't have any kids or anything and he's having a great time. Training camp's been really hard, but it's good hockey and obviously financially it's pretty good. So if, as long as you get a couple of good imports on your team, that can kind of make or break your experience over there. But if you, as like an American or Canadian, if you're there with other imports, you don't speak English and also all a lot of the Russians who don't speak English, it can definitely be hard and pretty lonely. Yeah, you got the, um, what's it called? Not Rosetta Stone, the new one, uh, the Duolingo app up uh, up 24-7 in the change room. Uh, yeah, but Russian's a hard language, just with the alphabet and stuff coming from, like, you know I mean? Coming from English, I think, like, some guys are able, like, if you're Czech or something, I feel like some of those guys have an easier time picking it up. But, yeah, it's tough. I learned a few words, but, I mean, overall, like I said, as long as you've got a crew of two or three guys who you enjoy going to dinner with and stuff on the road and kind of laugh about stuff, I think you can get through it. The following season, you played for H- HK Dukla Trenchen in Slovakia on loan from the Hurricanes. After that season, playing in uh, in Belarus and Russia, were the Hurricanes the only team calling? Like, or did you have multiple offers? What made the Hurricanes the right team for you? They were the ones who sold kind of like the most NHL opportunity, and I wanted to give it one more shot before I retired. So that's what they did. But I mean, the season kept getting pushed back. And at that point, we'd just been skating and stuff for so long that one of my brother's good friends, Marion Gabrick, helps out with Duke Trenton. So they've kind of been texting and playing with my brother is something that I never really was able to do in college. We played together, but we both play center. So it was like, hey, we'll go over there for a little bit, play together. And it was an unbelievable experience. We lived in like one of Gabrick's condos and he gave us like, we were, you're going to laugh. We were driving these unreal cars to the rink every day and we weren't even getting really paid to play hockey, but we were rolling around town and some of the coolest cars you could find. And just playing together was awesome. Like we played on the same line. I made him play wing, which was a big debate we had for the whole plane ride over there. So we'll see. How was that, uh, that debate settled? The who plays wing, who plays center? Well, he obviously argued that he's got way more NHL games. And my argument was because he has way more NHL games, it should be easier for him to play wing in Slovakia. So I actually remember one game I'd play center and he would stand like as a winger for the faceoff and literally wouldn't even put a stick on his ice. And if I wouldn't win the draw clean, he would just stand there and stare at me for two or three seconds. 
So finally one game, I kind of yelled at him and he looked at me and said, if you can't win a draw over here, then I'm playing center. And then he hopped in the center circle and unfortunately like mopped four or five straight back. And it was just pretty comical. That was like the last game we were there, but I wish like we could have gone over there in a non COVID years because like, everyone kept saying like the whole town we were in is such a big hockey town. And like, that was one of the best parts of playing in Europe is like some of the atmospheres and stuff. And I guess that Dukla team has one of the best too, but we weren't able to experience it, any of it, but like the coach was great. Like he played us together the whole time. The guys were great. I think we ended up playing five games maybe. And it was so fun, especially now that I'm retired, like I'm really happy that we went over and did that. I think we were only over there for like 14 days. Like we literally flew over we like lost our bags or something. We had to sit at the airport for a few hours and we ended up like playing the next day, I think at like three o'clock. So it was like, it was pretty crazy, but yeah, it was awesome. Face-off percentage aside, you were no slouch in that, that five game stretch, three goals, seven assists, plus three, 10 points. It was nice playing with my brother. He gave me a few tappings. So uh, that was nice. So you went back to play with Carolina as like when the season came up and back up and running, you played a handful of games there and in the, uh, the AHL with Chicago. Can you just like, Take us through the, I don't want to see the aura around the, around the team, like the way they are in the dressing room, because that's a team that is one of the most exciting and one of the most entertaining organizations in the league right now. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, I think that it was nice going to Carolina just because I knew a few of the guys, um, which obviously makes it easier. I played with that Vincent Trocek in Florida for a while. So it was nice having him because he'd been there for a while. And I really enjoyed like playing for Rod. Obviously Rod has like the Rod, the bod stereotype and like he loves to work out and stuff like that. But uh, he does a really good job and like makes guys want to buy in. You want to play hard for him. And he's another guy too that everyone knows how he played. So everyone sees how hard he still works. So when he's a guy, uh, you don't really want to let down. And I think that kind of starts the whole culture there. And they've been able to have a lot of success. And obviously they ran into Tampa who is pretty tough to beat in a seven game series but I think that if they had somehow gotten through that series they would have had a real good chance of going all the way what's the uh the ego shot like when uh, your, your coach is the most jack person on the team well like I said that's what uh I'm pretty sure so this year was weird because of COVID and everything but I'm pretty sure that I've been told that he does the fitness testing so he always says he would never make guys do something he couldn't do and so if he's still doing it at his age it kind of makes you uh all right, I'll shut up and I'll get on the bike. So uh, no, he's good. He was good to me too. I'll never forget. He knew I was away from my wife and I had a new daughter this year and I wasn't going to play in two of the games. Like just came up to me and just said, Hey, like if I want to go home and see my family for two or three days, like he really would. And that was something that I don't think a, a lot of coaches would do and be like, I mean, obviously he was focused on winning a playoff game, but took time out of his day to kind of come up to me and make sure I was good. And he did that a few times during the run. And it was just, I don't know, you can kind of tell from just little things like that, like how good of a person he is. And I think that kind of resonates with everyone else in the locker room. So well said, well said. There's actually one more thick person that just popped in my head right now that I want to ask you about. It's going to go back to your time in Florida, but Gomer, Scotty Gomez, how was it? What was it like with your time with your time with him playing with him, even though he was, I think, pretty sure at the time he was towards the end of his career when he played with you in Florida. But what kind of a, a rock star was he? Because I've been I've heard the stories. I've, I've seen the chiclet interviews. Can you speak on him a little bit, even with his playing days? Yeah, like I talked a lot about it on Spit and Chicklets, but like, I mean, he was one of the best teammates I ever played with. It was funny. After I gave that interview on Chicklets, I talked a little bit about him and I hadn't caught up with him in a while. And he called me right away that night. And he's like, basically like, why the fuck is everyone sending me videos that you talking about? <laughs> he's like, you didn't have anything else to talk about, but no, he's good. Like, and he just always took care of everyone was like kind of one of those old school guys who uh, just treated everyone with respect. Like anytime the trainers on the team needed anything, like he was the first guy to do it. The trainers would go out to dinner and he knew about it. He'd call the restaurant and pick up the bill. And he's just like a guy, like I said, who kind of took care of everyone. And you can see like some of those guys, like kind of similar to Rod, who have been able to have a lot of success. Like I'm, I'm, I think he might've won, Gomer might've won one or two cups, but like early in his career. So you could just tell that he was a guy who had been brought up in the game by good people. And I think that was something that really stuck out to me, just how, kind of how well he took care of everyone and took care of me too. So and he never let anyone pick up the tab. So he was always a good guy to go to dinner with. Yeah, I think he won uh, two or three cups with the, the Devils late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, I think so. And like that was early in his career. So, I mean, I think that like at that time, they had so many legends playing for New Jersey. And those were kind of the guys who brought him up in the game. And like I said, I uh, haven't seen him in a few years just because I've been bouncing around a lot. But now that I'm retired, hopefully I'll cross paths with them at some point this year and catch up. Beautiful. Anyways, Drew, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's an absolute pleasure having you on. No problem. Thanks, man. Enjoyed it. All right. Take it easy. Ciao, ciao. Yeah, later.
We hope you guys enjoyed the interview. And again, thank you to Drew for coming on the show. An absolute great guy. For anyone listening, send us a DM or comment on uh, our post when the episode comes out on our Instagram or Twitter pages uh, as to whether or not you like the solo interview, because uh, I'm actually curious. So it's a, it's a bit of a different dynamic to the group interviews that we usually do. So I'm just curious what uh, your thoughts are. Getting back into uh, everything, Zach Ronaldo, he's had an interesting summer. The Blue Jackets enforcer, he was caught at a... Um, what was it? The People's Party of Canada rally? What was that new party that was getting a lot of traction in Canada? It was the People's Party, right? Oh, yeah. If that was, then it was the People Parties, yeah. Yeah, he was found at a um, People's Party of Canada rally over the summer. He's been on the record saying that he's pro-choice. Like He he was taught, he came out against the, the mandates about mandatory vaccines within the NHL, and he chose not to get vaccinated. So now... I'm pulling up the article for the uh, full quote right now, but Zach Ronaldo will no longer be playing for the Columbus Blue Jackets organization this season. Originally, he was uh, uninvited from camp. He was going to go straight down to the minors. But now, um, Jan Lining has come out uh, and said that they're looking to loan him out to another franchise, whether it be within the NHL, the AHL, ECHL, even in Europe, whatever league he wants to go to, they will try and loan him out to a team. I expected this to happen. The ruling is get vaccinated or you're screwed. We saw this happen with a player on the island. I don't know if you like read that story, Muff, but I forgot his name. He didn't get vaccinated. He was like some minor league forward. And then uh, Lou sent him, or like some fringe NHL forward that Lou sent down to uh, the minors and leader sent to the second Swedish division. Yeah, yeah, that I saw, yeah. And then he comes out, he's like, yeah, it's my choice, it's my choice. Yeah, with, yeah, with Lou Lamorello, you don't have a choice. It's just do what Lou says or get off the team. You're not getting paid. I can understand that you don't necessarily want to cut players for the reason that they're anti-vax, but you can easily make the argument that he's just a shitty player who doesn't deserve a spot in the NHL because he sucks. He has 42 points in 374 games, and he's a minus 43. So he does nothing offensively. He's a liability defensively. He has 758 penalty minutes to boot. <sighs> I mean, he sucks. Forget about his vaccination status. You can toss that out the window if you want. If you don't want to make it political, he's just an awful player who uh, doesn't really have a spot on any NHL team. That, that's kind of my view of it. You can twist it any way, which way you want, look at it through whatever lens you prefer, but that's how I feel. Harsh, blunt, whatever you want to call it. But I do agree. Like, he's not an everyday player. And when I remember when I first read the article about him being uninvited to training camp the article was uh, also said about how him and his agent they negotiated a 300 or $350,000 AHL contract which to my knowledge is one of if not the most expensive AHL salary for a two-way contract in league history like the guy signed 750 grand a year on a one-year deal on a two-way and he's making over half that contract yeah, over half that contract in the minors. Usually when you see a, a league man contract, the player in the minors is making 80 grand, 90 grand, 100 grand. So they knew that he wasn't going to make the NHL team. But I get it why they don't want to have him on the, in the organization anymore. They set out the rules and you don't, follow, you don't want to follow the rules. It's your choice, but you're no longer playing for this team. You're no longer going to be playing in this organization. They're still going to pay a salary, but he's gone. This can be the last time we see him in uh, playing hockey in North America. In my opinion, we've seen anti-vax people before, like players like Mackenzie Blackwood from the starting goalie of the Devils. He's anti-vax. He's not vaccinated, but it's not that he's anti-vax or he's pro-choice. It's like I saw the I was reading the article before we started. He has health issues. So he has health issues that stop him from being vaccinated for the time being. Josh Archibald, the guy who people, everyone, including myself, was giving shit for for not getting vaccinated. It came out that he has a heart condition, myocarditis, that he got from catching COVID. So he's not going to be playing for, at the, at the bare minimum, a lot. Like he's out indefinitely. I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't play for the whole season. So stuff like that, I do understand that not everyone that wants to get vaccinated can get vaccinated. But if you're healthy enough to get vaccinated, not even if you're, in, like you're playing in the NHL or whatever, if you work for an organization that has mandatory vaccinations and you choose not to get vaccinated, I respect it. It's your choice. but you have no right to be in the organization and just flaunting the rules. It's harsh. It's political. I don't like talking politics on the show, but it's just my genuine opinion. If you're healthy enough to get vaccinated and you don't want to get back and you choose not to, then you can't be complaining when you get kicked out of the team. Thoughts? 
plain and simple. Couldn't agree anymore. Beautiful. Question is now is whether or not he's going to end up playing for another AHL team, going out to the ECHL, going to going to Europe. I wouldn't be surprised if he goes to Europe. Yeah, I think he'll just call it a career and. Uh... No, oh, he's not going to call it a career. Because if he calls it a career now, he's just he's not going to get paid. He's going to finish off that contract. Well, the thing is, yeah, you go play out in Europe, but he doesn't fit the way Europeans play hockey. Europeans are all skill, speed, and there's hardly any physicality over there. I mean, he, he has none of that. Depends where, depends where you look. Depends where you look. I mean, unless you want to play for some bottom-end Czech team it's in, like, Division Three or whatever, or... Yeah, sure, go ahead, but I mean... Not even Div, Czech Div 3. The Czech Div 1, like, you look at players, guys like Yarby Yager, who I'm still surprised he's doing as well as he is. Put it bluntly, the guy's maybe 10% as fast as he was back when he was playing in his prime, and he's still there putting out, uh, having a very good season. You'll be able to find him a league where he can go. Even Paul Bizanet was, I think, pretty sure he was point per game playing in England, so if Paul Bizanet can do it, then he can do it. I don't know. I don't see him having a career anywhere else now. Person, yeah. It could go either way. I get both sides of the argument. Moving on now to something a little more on a lighter note. Sheldon Keefe signs a two-year contract extension with the Leafs to remain as head coach. I don't know the exact dollar amount, but I truly don't care. Signing coaches doesn't come out of the salary cap. Toronto's worth over $1.5 billion, I think, or $1.3 billion. They could spend as much money as they want on their staff. I like Keefe. I like the way that his mentality, the way he's been coaching. Ever since he came here, so no other way around it. He's not the problem in Toronto. Thoughts? A great job done by Dubis to get him to stay. Personally, I would have probably tried to have him here for a little longer because time and time again, we keep seeing that the issues in Toronto don't fall with the front office. They don't fall with the coaching staff. It's all on the players now. And Keith is a good coach. He doesn't get enough credit. I don't know. If you've watched that Maple Leaf documentary on Amazon Prime, then... Have you seen it? Yeah, I did. How is it? It's very, very good. I haven't seen it yet. I'm dying to watch it. I have an exam on Saturday, and after the exam, I'm going to... It's what, five one-hour episodes? 5.45s. All right, so I'm binging that thing Saturday night. When you watch it, if you watched it already, you'll understand that he's a great coach man i mean there's no there's no two ways about it he's able to get energy of his players he knows what to say what to do there's some things on the ice that don't maybe uh align with the way that i would do him in certain situations but you know what he's the one that's behind the bench and i'm the one watching the games from at home so a little bit of an age discrepancy there and experience too but it's a good contract i'm happy with that think of it this way he still hasn't had a full 82 game season full training camp nothing because even last year with training camp they cut it short compared to usual years moving on now to a very very controversial topic being robin leonard so he has been very vocal on twitter he's always been vocal on twitter but more recently in the past week or so and he'll go and post tweets about the jack eichel situation in buffalo about his experiences in buffalo and the doctors in buffalo were putting him on certain pills uh i believe it was benzodiazepine and ambient yeah benzodiazepine and ambient and he was posting about true experience i was reading a tweet as you were talking about and i quote this is in regards to the to nolan patrick situation in philly dinosaur coach treating people robots not human treating people like robots but whatever he's swedish so we'll give we'll give him the, the benefit of the doubt Fire these dinosaurs, fire Vigneault. First story I got approved. Try and shake your way out of this one. And they said Ambien is sleeping pill. It's funny that Rehab told me that's why I didn't have REM sleep. Eight years, no REM sleep. Great. But yeah, just sleeping pills. REM sleep is basically the, to my knowledge, the state that your mind goes through during sleep to give you like rest and energy. And he's saying for eight years, he didn't experience that even while he was on Ambien and all that. And it become these pills become uh, like start with a chemical dependency. And he's gone, Robin Leonard's gone through every type of struggle in this sense. And it's terrible to hear. And I'm honestly really happy that he's coming out and speaking about it. The NHL has come, has reached out to Leonard to, uh, to interview him regarding uh, his experiences. I hope this leads to change. I've heard other stories like this about team doctors giving them pills, like painkillers, just to say, okay, like take these painkillers and you can go back on the ice. A hockey players, athletes, they portray themselves like soldiers like uh not even soldiers like robots 
where they can't get hurt or like they'll do anything to get back on the ice. Like I get that. I've felt it too. I've torn a muscle in my knee and gone back on the ice and fucking immense pain. But in the end, like hockey is not everything. Players have to focus on themselves they, and, and their actual health, their physical and mental health. So that in their life after hockey, they're not trying to live in a wheelchair because they took so many painkillers that it fucked up their head or they, they, they can actually walk. Muff, what are your thoughts on the situation? I mean, the NHL has been under um, a lot of scrutiny with the painkillers and all this stuff and the way medical professionals on teams handle different situations. We heard it with Nolan Patrick. Jack Eichel's been a big situation. Leonard also tweeted about that over there in his time with Buffalo. We've seen the documentary with Ryan Kessler and Toradol and how much it's affected him after the game of hockey. Uh, I, I can understand that hockey, it's a business before anything. And, you know, trying to win. So you pump these guys with this and that to get them back on the ice to give your team the best chance to win. But there is a certain point where you have to take in the player's health, whether it be now or after their playing days are over. Like Jack Eichel is a perfect example. He wants to do a certain neck procedure that works really well with people, but it hasn't been tried on a hockey player yet. But the Sabres want him to do a neck fusion that's going to limit him and his abilities on the ice. But it, it's it been used on players before in the NHL. It's just, like I said, it limits him and it, he won't return to the kind of electric player that he was before. So I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist or anything, but I still do kind of look at every situation and as much as you want the team to come first, you do have to take in the player's health and, and uh, physically and mentally. So that's kind of where I stand on And There's a fine line. I don't want to go too much into it. It's not a subject I can really talk forever with on. There's one thing I was curious about. So the Jack Eichel surgery, when he initially came out and said he wanted to do surgery, wasn't the issue that, and I could be mistaken, very badly mistaken, but wasn't the story that Buffalo wanted him to just rest on it and he wanted surgery? They wanted him to rest. He wanted to do one sort of surgery or one procedure. Buffalo, wanted, they were like, okay, yeah, we'll do surgery, but you have to do a spine fusion or a neck fusion, whatever it was, neck fusion. Isn't that where you get uh, two vertebrae and infuse them into one? Yeah. That is fucking terrible. It, it limits you and your mobility and maneuverability and for somebody like Jack Eichel who's so explosive and he uses these head fakes and these shifty mujons on his edges he needs that stuff he needs to be mobile but what Buffalo wants him to do it's not in line with what he wants to do and as far as I know now Eichel's camp is trying to get the NHL involved to uh put an end to this bullshit now you mentioned that i believe that batman actually spoke out on that i'm pulling up the core now but i remember him i vaguely remember him saying yeah uh, both eichel and the sabers have the best intentions no the sabers don't one thing that i'm curious about is pull up what a bill would be for both those surgeries i don't think it's the bill because we're talking about pro nhl teams here yeah i know that but think about it but the pagulas are, no, are notoriously cheap it's not the bill so they want to do it one way and it's a whole shit show over there. And, you know, you can't move them because a lot of teams are hesitant that there's more to this story than just his neck. Teams don't think uh, the Sabres are being honest about the severity of it. But that's nothing I can get into much deeper detail to. Sorry, I have the article right now. This is Gary Bettman yesterday on Jeff Merrick, radio show on Sportsnet 590 in Toronto. Most importantly, we're focused on Jack's health. We are pretty up to speed on in terms of what is going on. And there's a legitimate disagreement among doctors as to what the course of, uh, of treatment would be best, both in the short and long term. And that's something that everyone's wrestling. Eichel wants artificial disc replacement surgery while the Sabres want a standard fusion procedure, which Eichel is refusing. Under the terms of the CBA extension uh, reached in July 2020, the teams control the medical decisions made for their players. So this is going to be a prolonged stalemate. And again, like I wish, I wish Jack all the best with this, but especially in time for the Olympics, because that's he, like, he missed it in 2018. He hasn't been able to represent his country in a best on best tournament ever. 
world championships aside because the world championship is not truly a best on best because that's during the NHL season when a lot of a good chunk of players are still playing. But regardless of that, like I hope that they do end up going ahead with the artificial replacement because if that is what can make him get back to even 90, 95% compared to the fusion, I, I wanted to go for it. But they, he is in a fucked up situation now with the CBA and all of that. The gray areas and uh, around uh, medical procedures. It's a sticky and sad situation all around. Anyways, so moving on, the Arizona Coyotes become the first team to have a fully relaxed dress code, ditching the normal and historic dress code around wearing suits to and from every single game. So the Coyotes players will not be allowed to wear whatever they want. I'm going to give my quick two cents on this. Try and make it quick. I hate it. I want these players to be wearing suits. They're a professional athlete. I get it. Fans think players should express themselves and this and that. But like at the same time, it's a business and you're going there to go to work. You're not going there to fuck around. And I don't want the league to turn into the NBA. And I'm never going to forget where I think it was Nick Young from Golden State few years ago during the, during the NBA final when he came in wearing a robe and uh, boxers. I see that and I, I want to fucking lose it. I don't know. I'm, I'm all on board with this. I don't necessarily care for the uh, express yourselves or whatever, but you got guys who have like style and you know how to dress. Austin Matthews, William Nylander, just name a few on the Maple Leafs. But you have guys around the league like Lundqvist would have been a beautiful guy to see what he can do. But, you know, there's guys who can go and pull off looks. And if you just look at their social medias, that's a point proven there. But I think more teams adopt this. And I think in a way you kind of grow the game too, right? You don't have all 23 guys dressed up in these standard suits. Look, you just talked about Nick Young with the Robin boxers. He hasn't played on the Golden State Warriors in years. And when that happened, that was like four years ago. But till this day... There are still people talking about what Nick Young wore. It gets people talking. It's about growing the game. And the NHL has struggled to grow the game. Like we've said before, they have a great product. So now you kind of have to be innovative. It's up to the teams. And the Coyotes have been the first ones to relax the dress code. Now, if you get other guys, say the Maple Leafs or whatever, then you get like a, uh, a William Nylander. So I'm going to stop you right there. I do not think the Leafs will ever adopt the uh, the relaxed dress code. You see, I and I think they will. I don't think any of the original six teams will adopt will adopt a relaxed dress code at all. You see, I, I think one hundred percent they will. Is you get guys like uh, Nylander and Matthews who come dressed to the game like Thing One and Thing Two from Despicable Me. That's all over social media. You have people talking about that. But you're like Dash Three tonight. That's that's cat in the hot. Or, oh, I, I don't I don't watch that. I'm just I'm just referencing thing one thing two whatever. But like that's got to be a clip coming up on the YouTube channel one of these days. All right, that's fine. I don't know. It's just people talk about it, man. You grow the game. Like there's nothing bad that comes out of this. Literally nothing bad. I get where you're coming from. My personal opinion, and also because like I'm somebody who likes to dress formal like i am always up for wearing a suit wherever i go i think it cheapens it i hate when i see professional athletes showing up to games practice is one thing it's practice i don't care but like i am somebody who likes the uniform when you show up to a game when everyone's wearing a suit everybody looks i don't know how to explain it but i like call me it's i'm I'm old-fashioned yes but i like the suit look I like the fact that it's it's a it is a business all in all. Hockey is a sport on a professional level. It's a business, so I like the fact that they make the players go dressed in suits. There's more positives on them with a relaxed dress code than there are negatives with wearing a relaxed dress code. And hell, if it, if it turns into a complete shit show, reverse it, put it back. Who cares? Right now, the the ruling is it's all up to the general manager as of right. And I, I think Dubis would be a guy who would 100% would do it. I think 100%. No doubt in my mind. But when you got guys like Shanahan, when you got guys like still Daryl, like you're not Daryl Sutler, guys like Cliff Fletcher, people have been making fun of Edmonton. Toronto's an old boys club too. If you look at their staff directory in their man, like their management division, it is like, I'd say at least 80% of it is ex-Leafs and like guys older than 50. So I do not think that, and I, I'm maintaining it. I don't think that Leafs will ever adopt that. 
Well, the, a team like the Maple Leafs, they fit it, man. They got young guys who know how to dress. If there's any team that would excel from a relaxed dress code, I think 100% would be the Maple Leafs. I'm just waiting until the NHL, because um, I feel like it is going to happen. I hate to say it, but I feel like it is going to happen. When the NHL says, okay, like league-wide, okay, you don't have to wear suits anymore, unless stated by your general manager. I'm waiting until every team's showing up in hoodies and track pants, but Lou Lamorello still makes his team go in full three-piece, full tie, or gelled hair and all that shit. I'm sure it'll still happen. Maybe he'll be dead by then. Which, you have to agree with me on that. Any Lou Lamorello team is always going to end up wearing suits. And that's one thing I like with the guy. Like, he keeps his players in check. They're not allowed to grow facial hair, so... I have a bit of a beef with that, but because like that's not that big of a deal. But at the same time, it's not that big of a fucking deal. So at the same, yeah, like unless you have guys like Joe Thornton, who is known, like he has the some of the nicest facial hair in the league. But whatever. I don't know about nice, but that's another topic for another time. <laughs> that's that'll be next week's topic. Uh, so there's one to- one more topic I want to discuss tonight. If I could pull up. Evander Kane, we all know the situation that happened with him in the, in the past few weeks. He has been subject to gambling accusations. He's been cleared, but now he is currently under investigation by the NHL and a private investigator for breaching COVID protocols last season. And this does not surprise me at all because we all know the type of player Evander Kane is. Here we go. Evander Kane uh, is being investigated for the use of fake vaccination cards. That just got updated four minutes ago. If this comes out as true, he's never playing this league again. His contract's getting bought out. He's going to go to Russia. I feel like he'd actually enjoy it more in, more in Russia than he would here. He's just put himself in such a hole at this point with the uh, alleged abuse uh, claims and the uh, gambling on games, now breaking COVID protocols. He's making his own bed, and now he's going to have to sleep in it. And it's not going to be a good night's sleep. It's really not going to be, and he's not going to be able to play in the league anymore, I think, if that whole faking the passports or whatever you said, the card or passport. Faking vaccination vaccination receipts. If there's any validity to it, but he's just completely killing himself. 100%. He's had a history of being an idiot, for lack of a better term, just being a complete fucking idiot. And it's now finally going to bite him in the ass. No other way to put it. The Sharks will get out from under that $7 million contract or whatever, I think seven mil for the next four years. And he's going to go and be on a line with Nikita Gusev and Pavel Datsuk next season, or this season, sorry. And there's possibilities for where he goes. Just, I don't see any of them being in the NHL. Yeah, endless possibilities. He could be playing on a line with Gusev. He could be playing on a line with Datsuk. He could be playing on a line with uh, Vadim Shipachayov, with Kovalchuk. Well, list goes on and on. List goes on and on, anywhere in Europe. Okay, so before we end it off, for once, news comes out just as we're fin- just about to finish recording, as opposed to the second we stop recording. We discussed Josh Hosting earlier uh, at the start of the episode. Now, as per Leafs PR, Josh Hosting has been released from his PTO and assigned an AHL contract with the Marlies. It's going to be the same thing as they did with Galchenyuk. You don't bring him in to and stick him right into the NHL. Otherwise, you have the same player that you had from other teams. You put him into the minors, build up his confidence. When the time is right, if he's playing well, bring him up to the uh, pro lineup like Galchenyuk, and hopefully he has an impact on the team for better that, rather than worse. There's a little bit of red tape around that because he's he's not signed to a two-way, so you would have to sign him to an NHL deal before bringing him up. And I'm not 100% sure if they're at the 50-contract limit. Give me one sec. No, they're not at the 50-contract limit. Well, he said he was willing to sharpen skates for the teams. I think it's a safe bet to say if he really wants to play in this organization, then he's going to sign his two-way at uh, that minimum dollar figure. It's, it's incredible. Because four years ago or whatever, I never would have thought that it was coming from his mouth. Never. But uh, here, time's change. Yeah. Four years ago, lot, 12 months ago, I never would have thought that, was, that would have come out from his mouth. Uh, people change. and. Not a bad thing, good thing, but people change and people deal with Lou Lamorello sending them to Sweden. I think he ended up getting kicked off his Swedish team too. Having a big mouth will do that to you, that's for sure. He's a Toronto boy, and I think he's gonna he's gonna excel with the Marlies. I'm I, I hope so. From what I've seen of him in the preseason, I really like the way that he plays. After one or one trade or one injury, he's gonna be up with the team. Him and uh, Nick Robertson are both gonna be up with this team. I'm looking at their cap friendly right now. They got 13 forwards on the roster. 
I think once McKay once McKay gets traded, he's gonna end up coming up here. Because I'm gonna say right now, McKay's gonna get traded. Also, I'm looking at their cap friendly. This is the last season they're paying Phil Kessel's salary. So this is the last season with $1.2 million in dead cap. And they currently have $80,000 in cap space to play with, which is, I find hilarious. Hold on, next season, they're going to have 13.7 mil. Who's off the books? Campbell, Riley, Sandin's going to need, is going to need an extension. Spezza, who cares? He'll sign back league men. Engvall, Kasha, and Mikheyev, they're all have expiring deals. So uh, it's going to be an interesting. Every, I swear every year is a shit show for this team. Story of our lives as Leaf fans. Anyways, yeah, we'd like to thank you guys all for tuning in to episode 27 of Twigs and Twine. We hope you guys all enjoy. From now on, we will be posting our these uh, episodes every Thursday. So uh, we're going to be switching our schedule over from Wednesdays to Thursdays from now on until further notice. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you all next Thursday when the season starts.